Welcome, Sarah, to Baltimore. And the text today for our sermon comes from John 15, 18 through 27. If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. But all these things they will do to you on account of my name, because they do not know him who sent me. If I had not come and spoken to them, they would not have been guilty of sin. But now they have no excuse for their sin. Whoever hates me hates my father also. If I had not done among them the works that no one else did, they would not be guilty of sin. But now they have seen and hated both me and my father. But the word that is written in their law must be fulfilled. They hated me without a cause. But when the Helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of Truth, who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me. And you also will bear witness, because you have been with me from the beginning. Dad, can this vase be called anything other than what it is? No, my daughter, it cannot be said the father. Well, so too, I cannot be called anything than what I am, a Christian, said Perpetua. Perpetua is, a noble, is from a noble family, and her maid Felicitas was eight months pregnant with her child, and there were two women prisoners held in a dark hole in the Roman province called Carthage, the modern-day city of Tunis, the capital of Tunisia. It was in the year A.D. 2003, the Roman Emperor Septimius Severus made an edict that all religions should admit his sun god, Saul Invictus, reigned above them. Christians refused to yield to this syncretism. Thus, conver conversion to Christianity was a punishable crime with death. Syncretism means mixing of other gods with Christianity and other practices with Christianity. Perpetua and her maid Felicita, Felicitas, pregnant with a child, along with three other catechumens. That means people who were prepared by instruction to be baptized. You know, in the early church, people who said they accepted Christ were called catechumens, unlike today. They were uh, discipled and prepared for baptism for two to three years. These five people, they, they, they refused to, to renounce their Christian faith. Perpetua's father, who was a pagan, tried his best to persuade her to abandoning her faith, but to no avail. Felicitas, her maid, gave birth to her child early, 
and another Christian woman adopted the baby girl. Seeing her mourn in childbirth, her jailers asked how she expected to be able to face the beast in the arena. Felicitas answered, Now my sufferings are only mine, but when I face the beast, there will be another who will live in me and will suffer for me since I shall be suffering for him. On the day of the sentencing, the three male martyrs were sent ahead into the arena, and they quickly died, attacked by the beast. Perpetua and Felicitas were placed in the arena to be attacked by a crazed cow. Finally, the two women bathed in blood bid farewell to each other, and they were put to death by a sword. Persecution of Christians is a reality today. More Christians have died in the last hundred years than all Christians died during the 300 plus years of the early church persecution. That's because more Christians are living all over the world and the widespread persecution is still present. The text today focuses on Christ's instruction and counsel to his disciples and thus to us today, now, to face the hostility and persecution that is ahead of us and, uh, and that was ahead of them back then. Jesus wants us to strengthen us in the face of hostility by warning us of the enmity of the world, by pointing us to the empowering spirit, and by calling us to an enduring witness. My first point today is the enmity of the world. Christ wants his disciples to know that they better know that the enmity of the world is guaranteed. So don't be surprised. Verse 19 reads, If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. God has chosen us out of the world to live in the world, but not of the world. And the world will hate us when we live out this countercultural, called-out lives for, of witnessing Christ. So don't be surprised and become a frozen chosen. <laughs> you know, Perpetua and Felicitas could have easily agreed to the Roman emperor's edict and have accepted the Son God above Jesus Christ and lived. Everything would have been fine with them. Recently, my wife and I had to walk out of a classical dance recital of one of our daughter's friends. Friend. We were troubled by the syncretism that was displayed in the ceremony, mingling Christianity with Hindu gods and goddesses. It was painful for us to leave our friends in the midst of their celebration but we did it in good conscience, knowing that one day, sooner or later, that they will realize what they were doing is a huge compromise to please their non-Christian friends. Some of you know that I became a Christian from a Hindu background. I had to do a lot of leaving and cleaving. The hostile world is putting tremendous pressure on us to compromise our Christian faith in our workplaces, in our families, and among our friends. 
Where do we get the power to withstand these pressures and temptations? The early church Christians were falsely accused of being irrational, cannibalistic, people engaging in incest, stubborn, and disrupting the law and order. Even today, Christians are vastly caricatured with broad strokes as homophobic, intolerant, hypocritical, archaic, and unscientific. The hatred of the world here is leveled against the disciples. Secondly, against Christ himself. Thirdly, against the Father God. From this hatred, we can identify who are these people called world in this passage. It is every person, every people group, every idea, political force or systems that oppose Christ and Christianity. We need to observe the contrasting characteristics of the world and the followers of Christ. The world is filled with hatred and persecutes Christians and Christ. Whereas Christians are called, commanded to love one another as Christ had loved us. Matthew Henry says, Christians are taught to hate the sins of the sinners, not the persons, but to love and do good to all men. A malicious, spiteful, envious spirit is not the spirit of Christ, but of the world. We see this in the way Christ interacted with the woman at the well in John chapter 4, and the way he entered the house of the chief tax collector Zacchaeus in Luke 19. Christ reaches out to sinners and the outcasts, heals the sick and the demoniacs who were spurned and ostracized by the society. The reaction Christ gets for spreading the good news of salvation this way in word and deed is hatred and persecution from the Jews, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and all the people who were with them. Christ indicates that the words and deeds he performed before them are the very fact that will condemn them and will uh, point out their sin of unbelief. These people saw and heard Christ, yet they hated him. They have been given much light, but they persisted to live in darkness, in faithlessness. They rejected the gospel lived out before them. Therefore, they stand condemned. It's not different. It's no different for us today. To summarize this point, Christ is encouraging his disciples to anticipate hatred and persecution from the world and not be surprised by it. But Christ was not going to leave them alone. He is going to send, he is promising to send the Holy Spirit to be with them. Second point, it's about him, the empowering spirit. Verse 26 reads, But when the Helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me. This is a loaded verse. There is a long history of development of theology around this. This, this verse describes the character of the Holy Spirit as well as the function. Let's observe what it says about the Holy Spirit. 
the third person of the Trinity. First, it says he is a person. Second, the helper, parakletos, or paraclete is the Greek word. The word paraclete can be interpreted in the following way. It can mean advocate, the one who provides counsel or defense for us at court. Comforter, the one who walks along. Maria works for Paraclete Ministry and to walk along. Another way to interpret it is the strengthener, the one who empowers. Did you notice Felicitas responded to the jailers saying, now my sufferings are only mine, but when I face the beast, there will be another who will live in me and will suffer for me since I shall be suffering for him. Finally, the paraclete can be called the counselor, the one who gives advice, wisdom, and discernment. Thirdly, we observe he is sent by Christ, and he proceeds from the Father. He is called the spirit of truth who guides us into all truth. Sixthly, his function that he will bear witness about Christ. I said first, the Holy Spirit is a person. He's the third person of the Trinity. The Westminster Confession of Faith, which is a reformed confession that was developed in the 17th century, it's our denominational confession of faith, the Presbyterian Church of America's confession of faith, that basically states that there are three persons in God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. But they are one in substance or essence, power and glory. In other words, they are cut from the same divine cloth. They share the same divine DNA. The development of the teaching and the doctrine of the Trinity is a fascinating study in the church history. I don't have time to go into it, but I invite you to join a soul food series in church history in the spring, so keep in mind about that. The Nicene Creed that was developed in 325 AD did not elaborate much about the Holy Spirit. It just mentioned his name. The church fathers directly responsible for including the description of the Holy Spirit in the Nicene Creed as it is in the form today and in the Westminster Confession and other confessions of faith in the widespread Christian church are the men called the Cappadocian fathers who lived in the fourth century. We have the picture here of them. These, are, these guys, there were three men. Two of them are brothers. One of them is called the Gregory of Nyssa, and the other one is called the Basil of Caesarea. And the third one is their close friend. He's also called a Gregory, but he's from a place called Nazianzus, from the region of Constantinople, the modern-day Turkey. But the fourth person many historians think that should be included with these great Cappadocians is a woman named Macrina. The next slide. Macrina was, a, was the oldest sister of Gregory and Basil, and she led both of these brothers to know Christ and instructed them in their Christian faith. She was simply known as the teacher, the D teacher in the church, in the Eastern Church. And uh, the Westerners also embraced them. Cappadocians were known for their simplicity of life. 
deep understanding of theology and philosophy, literature, poetry, and their concern for the poor. They were children of families coming from deep spiritual roots, and their grandparents lived through the persecution of the Roman Empire. No wonder the great Cappadocians had a thorough understanding of the Holy Spirit and his ministry. In my short study of the, church, the history of the church, his, uh, church history, what I observed, the people who had the robust biblical understanding of the Holy Spirit have lived powerful, holistic Christian witness. Unfortunately, the church during the latter part of the 5th century fought over this verse, the verse 26 from the chapter 15. It became one of the reasons why the Eastern Church split from the Western Church over this controversy. The Eastern Church argued that the Holy Spirit proceeds only from the Father. And the Western Church said the Spirit proceeds from the Father and the Son. Unfortunate, isn't it? The lesson for us today is that, that this verse is teaching us about the mission and the function of the Holy Spirit in the testimony we should bear for Christ before an unbelieving world. And it's not about the being or the ontology of, the, of God and to get involved in theological debates. The doctrine of the Trinity teaches us that our triune God is in the business of reaching out to an unbelieving world that is hostile towards him. The Father sends the Son, the only begotten Son, because he loved the world. John 3.16 says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. Notice the Greek word used for the world is cosmos. It is exactly the same word used in this text in John 15 that refers to the world that hates and persecutes Christ and his followers. Here we see the Son sending the Holy Spirit to bear witness about him, and the Spirit proceeds from the Father. If you allow me to peer further into this discourse, this uh, upper room discourse that Jesus is having with his disciples, he elaborates further about the kind of witness, the helper, the function of the Holy Spirit in John chapter 16. Jesus says, first the Spirit will convict the world of sin and righteousness and judgment. Secondly, the Spirit of truth will guide us into all truth. Thirdly, he will glorify Christ by taking what is Christ and declaring it to us. That's the work of illuminating our minds about the work of Christ or what Christ had done or accomplished for us. This leads us to the third point, an enduring witness. In verse 27, we read, You also will bear witness, because you have been with me from the beginning. The one who are called to bear witness, or in this assignment of bearing witness for Christ, are first and foremost, is the Holy Spirit. Second is his disciples. We find in Acts 1.8, the risen Lord Jesus Christ's last words to his disciples before his ascension. Acts 1.8 reads, But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit 
has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. The Greek word for witness is materia. The idea here is that the disciples are not just eyewitnesses who have been physically present with Jesus Christ, but also they are to identify with his character, mission, and passion for the world that he came to give his life for. The, the Spirit of God came upon, as Jesus promised, on the day of Pentecost, as we read in Acts chapter 2. And he filled his people to empower them to bear witness, to testify the, to the world. He baptized them in the Holy Spirit and to bear witness about Jesus Christ. It will not be an exaggeration to call the book of Acts as the book of the Acts of the Holy Spirit. The Spirit becomes the catalyst, driving force of mission. He guides, directs the missionaries where they should go and how they should proceed. The missionaries are not to execute their own plans, but have to wait on the Spirit to direct them. Philip's encounter with the Ethiopian eunuch, for, for instance, is through the agency of the Spirit in Acts 8. The Spirit tells the church to separate Paul and Barnabas for the ministry among the Gentiles. The indwelling presence of God has always remained amidst the people of God. In the Old Testament, it is called the Shekinah glory of God. When Christ came in the incarnation, Apostle John describes it, the word became flesh and dwelt among us, full of grace and truth. Here we see in Acts, it is preeminently through the Spirit that the risen Lord Jesus is present in the community of believers. Now you may wonder, how does this call to bear witness apply to us? Wasn't Christ speaking to his 11 disciples who have been with him from the beginning? The answer to this comes from the apostle of Christ, who is said to have been born, abnormally born, as he was not part of the 11 original disciples or apostles in this upper room discourse. Saul was part of the world that hated and persecuted Christ and his followers. But by the grace of God, angry and spiteful Saul was converted to become Paul. We see this in Acts 9 and 14. He becomes one of the greatest missionaries of the Church of Jesus Christ. See, for Paul, the grace of God was not without effect. The great Apostle Paul writes to the Corinthian church, a church that was filled with all kinds of sins and problems. In the second letter to the Corinthians, in chapter 3, verse 3, it reads, and you will show that you are a letter from Christ delivered by us, written not with ink, but with the Spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human hearts. If Paul can say this to the Corinthian believers, we have hope for us today. Amen. Paul indicates the new converts the new covenant reality that the law of God is now written 
in the human hearts with the spirit of the living God and not with ink. Dear brothers and sisters, we are the living letter of Christ to the unbelieving world around us through the work and the empowerment of the Holy Spirit. You know, when a person is born again, it is by the Spirit of God. He or she receives the Spirit of God or he or she is baptized by the Holy Spirit. In Romans 8, 9, it says, anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. That's not all. We are commanded to continue to be filled in the Spirit of God in Ephesians 5.18 and not to get drunk in wine and to walk by the Spirit of God so that we will not gratify the desires of the flesh. Having the fullness of the Spirit of God transforms us. It transforms our character and our lives so that our lives are marked by the fruit of the Holy Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Walking by the Spirit, having the fullness of Him, is fundamental and integral part of our abiding in Christ and to bearing fruit. Last Sunday, one of our FCF missionaries uh, talked at the missions luncheon about her ministry in a close country. For the, sake, for the sake of anonymity, I will refer to this person, this missionary, as Kate. Kate taught English at a university in this close country up in the north for about 10 years. About a year ago, Kate and her two colleagues were attending a conference, and during a talk, um, Kate intensely felt God speaking to her that she should leave that university. And immediately after the talk, she went and told what she heard clearly to her colleagues, two colleagues, and they said they heard the same thing, that they are supposed to leave. So they left. The point of the story here is that the Spirit of God spoke to three witnesses who were, had the burden of bearing testimony for Christ in a persecuted, in a country where persecution of Christ and his followers is a real threat. The Spirit of God spoke to them individually, but it was confirmed corporately by the way the members of the, the group or the, the team, missionary team, they were at the same place at the same time, but they were seated at different places. We have the New Testament in our hands today. The Holy Spirit is referred as the Spirit of Truth. The Spirit of Truth gave inspiration to the apostles who were with Christ and the early disciples who wrote down, wrote down the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, letters of Paul and Peter, and the other writings, they were all testimony by the Spirit who is the truth who is it's called the Spirit of Truth. That is the New Testament we have. So far we have seen the apostles, all of them except John, were martyred. We, we saw the early disciples. We talked about Perpetua, Felicitas, Macrina, and the Cappadocian fathers, and also about our own missionary Kate. These are witnesses. And the New Testament document another testimony 
through the agency and the power of the empowerment of the Holy Spirit. One more source of testimony that I should not fail to mention is the witness of John the Baptist, who was also martyred. In Luke 3, verse 16, John the Baptist says, I baptize you with water, but he who is, he who is mightier than I is coming, the straps of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. Have you noticed Jesus never mentions in this passage or any, 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 any time afterwards that he is going to baptize us with fire. The reason for that is that Christ went to the cross and underwent the baptism of fire on behalf of us. The judgment of God fell on him at the cross. He died so that we are given new birth through the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Through the indwelling presence of the work of the Holy Spirit, we are justified and sanctified. See, Jesus didn't die for us because we were lovely and beautiful, but in fact, we were part of the world that hates Christ. Romans 5 says, While we were sinners and enemies of God, Christ died for us to reconcile us to God. I mentioned earlier the Spirit glorifies Christ by illuminating our minds, by declaring to our hearts what Christ has accomplished on the cross on our behalf. What do you think when you don't have anything to think about? It's a good test to see what's in our, what are our heart idols. Where does our mind drift? When you let the word of Christ dwell in our hearts richly, the spirit of truth will always illuminate our minds to see the glory of Christ and transform our lives. Someone mentioned I should say something about my personal stories about how the spirit is working in my life. Most effectively, the spirit is working in my life by this way. When I hide the word of Christ, a good sermon that I hear, and when I catch myself drifting or wandering and let the Spirit of God minister to me through these words of Christ or a word of encouragement through a sermon, the Spirit of God transforms my life and he delivers free from my selfishness, anger, disappointments, and other things that besets all of us. My dear brothers and sisters, as we meditate on the truth of the gospel, it will melt our hearts. As Paul says, as, and we all with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this, for this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. Can you imagine this, this sanctuary is filled with people today? If we are all, as we sang, and as we read in the chapter 2 of Corinthians, wherever the Spirit of God, there is freedom. We sang so powerfully today that if the Spirit unleashes us with the power and deliverance, freedom, whatever that might be, see the impact that's going to have in our city, in our homes, and in our workplaces. Let us pray that the God... Um,
that God would make us become powerful witnesses for Christ in the city and in this world through this indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit of God. Father God, we are so thankful that you have not left us as orphans. And you have said that how much more that you would give the Holy Spirit when we ask from you, Lord. And we need him, Lord, in our lives. We need deliverance and freedom from many things that bind us, that shackles us, Lord. We need you, Lord, Holy Spirit, to come and illuminate our minds and take what is of Christ and declare it to us so that we may know and live out the deliverance and the freedom that you have given us and bear witness for you, bear testimony for you in a world there is hatred, Lord. There is enmity towards us and enmity towards each other, Lord. We pray that you would powerfully work in us, Lord. We invite you to come into our hearts corporately and individually. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.